You can now listen to Conning the Con ad-free on Apple subscription and buymeacoffee.com forward slash Conning the Con. But that is not all you will find there. I've got two little words for you. Tonka Trilogy. If you know, you know, right? And if you don't, keep listening to Con in the Con and it will all become clear soon enough. And if you want a sneak peek, head over to at Con in the Con on Instagram and get a look at the lighter side of this, well, very heavy con story. Simply click the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts for ad-free and bonus content. Or if you aren't an Apple user, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash con where on top of that ad-free and bonus content, you can access exclusive videos. You'll find all the links, as always, in the show notes. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Have you ever heard the term gaslighting? It originates from the classic film noir psychological thriller called Gaslight, released way back in 1944. It's a movie about a woman whose husband slowly manipulates her into believing that she's going insane. Manipulation, intimidation and gaslighting, they're all techniques that con artists use to exploit their victims. But it doesn't just happen overnight. It's sort of a a process of manipulation that they go through to try and form this attachment or bond to get you to bond with them. They find there's four different phases that they go through in forming this bond and the messages that they're kind of signalling to you. And the first is that I like who you are. So that's that whole kind of flattery phase. And the next message is around, I am just like you. So that's starting to signal that compatibility and understanding to make you feel like this person's a good match. And then there's this phase of your secrets are safe with me. So this is the kind of 
getting someone to open up, reveal some of their vulnerabilities and showing that they can accept those. And that's kind of where that bond really starts to strengthen. And then the kind of final phase is I am the perfect partner for you. So they find that people who are high in psychopathy analyze your expectations, your desires, and then they reflect this back to you in what they call a psychological mask. So it's obviously a facade. They don't necessarily have these these perfect traits, but they will adapt themselves to appear that they do so that they are this perfect match for you. Dr. Muir there. And I don't know about you, but just the term psychological mask sends chills down my spine. Coming up in this episode. You know, I didn't know what to believe if that was one of the one of the lies, but I thought it was definitely warranted investigating. Emma, throughout this entire experience, I've been nothing but 100% upfront with you. It hurts me immensely every time you respond with this twisted vision, an idea that I've done something wrong. At that moment, alarm bells began to ring for both of us. We were like, oh God, he knows. He knows that, that we're on to him. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Shadow dark upon the wall, moving slow and stretching toward her hands. Hold them up, that's cold. A shadow dark upon the wall, moving slow and stretching tall and up to the mountains her gaze is pulled. Let's do a quick recap of where we left off in the last episode. Emma had just received a text from Andrew outlining his latest scheme to repay his debt to her, and this one was a doozy. P.S. I'm taking a job with Sam. Pay from it will clear absolutely everything. I can't actually say where or when, sweetness, but I'll be safe compared to some jobs. I've made arrangements, so if I get held up, the pay is to go directly to you. More than what I owe you, but I can get that any time later. And so it was that Andrew Tonks, the world's most unassuming spy, was forced out of retirement to complete one last very dangerous mission. A mission so dangerous that payment for it would clear his debt to Emma in its entirety and some. Meanwhile, the New Zealand police were slowly but surely building that case against Andrew Tonks. And as far as we knew, Andrew, although he seemed a little suspicious, he didn't know that the net was closing in around him. But what he did know is that his house of cards had a few rather large cracks appearing in the foundations. For Andrew, that spiral downwards it had started with Emma getting cold feet on the $300,000 he had conned her into investing. Next was the collapse of the property development deal, followed soon after by the Saud Alcohol Company purchase. So it wasn't a massive surprise to Emma when the police informed her that a border alert had been triggered on Andrew when he fled the country. But she wasn't about to let him off the hook that easily. So with Emma safely in New Zealand and Andrew not so safely somewhere in Australia, Emma started to apply the pressure through her lawyers using the ruse that it was her brother triggering the lawyers and not her. It was a fine balance, a delicate dance back and forward, pushing just hard enough to get some movement towards payment, but not so hard that Andrew would break up with her. And sometimes Emma and I thought we'd done it and pushed it just a bit too far. Emma, 
throughout this entire experience, I've been nothing but 100% upfront with you. It hurts me immensely every time you respond with this twisted vision, an idea that I've done something wrong. May I remind you that not one part of this problem was because of me. If you were to be angry at anyone, that is your brother and your lawyer. Throughout this entire event, you have not once even tried to see it from my side. But the mere fact that Andrew was still willing to keep up the charade with Emma, even though he could just probably cut his losses at this point, got Emma and I thinking, why? Why was he still engaging? Was it for the money? Or was it to stop Emma from going to the police and triggering an arrest warrant for him in New Zealand? But he was in Australia and no one knew where he was. So if he was smart, surely he could just keep out of reach of the New Zealand police pretty easily, right? But what if something else was motivating him to try and keep off the police's radar in Queenstown? What if there was another con in play? By this stage, we'd written off many of his stories as complete rubbish, but there was one, the restaurant in Queenstown, that we had yet to investigate further. We knew it was a real restaurant, and for the sake of the podcast, we'll be referring to it as Restaurant Queenstown. He had taken me to this restaurant, it was based in Queenstown, actually on my birthday for a dinner out, and he was said that he'd been in the negotiations with the owner there for a few months now, trying to purchase the restaurant. At that stage, you know, I didn't know what to believe if that was one of the one of the lies, but I thought it was definitely warranted investigating and starting to dig into it. And I think this is where you went rogue, Sarah. I think this is slightly where. You came into your own as a private investigator. So maybe you should tell us what happened next. So what we knew about Queenstown Restaurant was that according to Andrew, he'd been negotiating the purchase long before he started dating Emma. The deal, it was around nine months in the making. At this point, I really wanted to understand Andrew's con in its entirety. I figured the more that we could prove that he'd set up prior to meeting Emma, the more it showed that he'd gone into the relationship with criminal intent. So in short, if Andrew had set up the cons and then gone looking for funding on Tinder, surely that would go some way to build a stronger case against him, if the New Zealand police could ever catch him. So yeah, I did go rogue, but it wasn't intentional. Emma and I, we were both exploring any leads we could find. Leads from Andrew's six months of stories with Emma, or leads that were contained in the Tonka Trilogy. But we were being very careful. We didn't want to get caught out using our real names, and of course it getting back to Andrew, as it had in the past, when Emma had used the name Joe Poplar. So I decided to send an email to Queenstown Restaurant using a pseudonym. Hi, this might seem like a bit of an odd question, but I wanted to check and see if you'd recently put the restaurant on the market. I had an investment manager who I think may have been fraudulent. He was selling a share in your restaurant. If you could let me know. Kind regards, Gary Smith. Only a few hours later, I received an email back saying, No, we're not selling any shares in Queenstown Restaurant, so it must be a fraudulent person. Okay, so another lie, I think to myself. Great, I can cross that one off the list. So I head back to the drawing board, and I think, "Mm, maybe I'll find some clues in the Tonka Trilogy. But before I dive into that, I reply back to the restaurant. Thanks for getting back to me. Also, my name is actually Sarah Ferris, but 
I needed to use a pseudonym. Apologies, but the con man I'm investigating has been tipped off before that we are looking into him, and I can't risk that again. I needed to check there was no truth to the story. And so back to the Tonka trilogy, I head for clues. Emma and I, we were not only keen to sort the lies from the truth in the present, we'd also been really interested to fill in the missing years and see if the past could shed some light on his present behaviour. Had he committed other crimes before his arrest in 2016? The Otago Daily Times article alluded to several convictions in Australia, so I went back to the Tonka trilogy to see if I could get some clues on where to look next. It was late 2008, and the GFC had hit the USA bad. What I discovered was that the US was nearly giving away classic cars, motorcycles, boats, and then general toys such as jet skis and dirt bikes had become ridiculously cheap as everyone was holding on to what money they had left. I saw an opportunity, and I jumped on it. So Andrew then goes on a bit of a buying spree, purchasing classic cars, a load of Harley Davidson, some jet skis, and a handful of ATV bikes. He sticks them in a container and ships them back to Oz. Within the first four weeks, I'd sold everything I'd sent. Within the first 12 months, I turned over just under 8 million Aussie dollars by Christmas 2009. Throughout that time, Andrew set up considerable contacts, and according to the Tonka Trilogy, in March 2010, he was even invited to take part in a large Harley-Davidson group ride from LA to Las Vegas. I was so excited. Turned out that almost any business dealing with these sort of toys, from LA South to the Mexico border, was run by the Hells Angels. Before I knew it, I was riding the back of a couple of thousand strong patch members tribute run. It was exhilarating. Now, the sticky part of me being on this ride is Australia just put into place some very serious anti-biker association laws. Now, little old me didn't put that together when my new mates in LA fell into that category. And nor did it strike me that the majority of my purchasing customers in Australia were associated with the Rebels motorcycle gang. So, long story short, Andrew had apparently just made it incredibly easy for the Australian Federal Police to say he was associated with motorcycle clubs. The new law gave the Australian government the right to detain and imprison any associate of a patch member. Mum, dad, girlfriend, accountant, you name it. If you're seen associated, you'll be held for up to 12 months. Upon returning to Australia, just after my birthday in 2010, I touched down in Melbourne Airport, and that was the last fresh air I was seen for several months. I have never felt such a breakdown of an individual as I did at that time. Now, I'd been in some tough situations during my private security stint, and I couldn't tell my family that I'd nearly been shot or blown up, etc., but the feeling of complete loss of freedom still gives me nightmares to this day. I spent the first two weeks in a Hannibal Lecter-style cell. I broke down every single day. The only other time I recall feeling close to this feeling is a similar situation I'm having with my partner and her family now. From absolute top of the world to rock bottom in an instant, with no warning and of no fault of your own. I was advised after the first 24 hours that I was being held under the new anti-association laws. These are roughly the same as anti-terrorism laws. Guilty until proven innocent with a maximum term of seven years for association. I was distraught, but deep down I felt like I was getting set up. Another feeling I have at the moment. Always someone else's fault with Andrew. Firstly, if he had had any shred of plausibility before, this one chapter took it straight to the ridiculous. I mean, come on, for a crime he wasn't even convicted of, according to Andrew, 
and the Australian prison system puts him straight into a Hannibal Lecter-style cell. I mean, can you hear the koalas screaming, Andrew? Ridiculous as it was, it did send me down a rabbit hole, hunting the prison records state by state for any sign of past convictions. But just as I was trawling through the New South Wales records, Emma rings me in a panic. He comes back to me and says, Sarah may have just ruined the deal with the restaurant. The reason why I knew that he was on to us and that he had a connection with that restaurant in Queenstown, he was because he quoted your email, Sarah, word for word back to me in a message. And at that moment, alarm bells began to ring for both of us. And we we're like, oh, God, he knows. He knows that, that we're on to him. I was... I think I felt a bit sick, but almost just gutted that maybe that was the thing that had undone us. If you've ever done a bungee jump or been in airplane turbulence, you'll know that feeling. That one that you get when your stomach just drops. And it feels like there's a few thousand butterflies doing backflips in there. Well, that's exactly how I felt in that moment. I could not believe that yet again Andrew had found out that we were digging. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So Andrew knew details that he could only possibly know if he'd been sent my email directly. Clearly, there was definitely a connection to Queenstown Restaurant. And two options sprang to my mind at the time. One, either Andrew worked or had a connection with someone who worked there and had subsequently been shown my email. Or two, he was actually involved in purchasing the restaurant. 
Either way, it was pretty clear that Andrew had his hooks into Queenstown Restaurant and I just couldn't see his angle yet. So I emailed back the restaurant immediately. Well, it seems that you do actually have dealings with Andrew Tonks. Are you able to please give me a call and do not forward this or my other emails on? It is a matter that is very sensitive. I am a total bundle of sick nerves at this point. And with the 12-hour time difference between the UK and New Zealand, I didn't really expect to hear anything soon. So I stomped out the door for a dog walk. And as I reached the riverside, my phone rings with a New Zealand number. I answer with a lot of trepidation and am greeted by an irate Australian male voice. For the sake of the podcast, we will use the name Tony. Now, I can't remember Tony's exact words, but the gist of his opening tirade was that how dare I tell his staff he was selling and he had supposedly received many resignations because of it. Turns out the owner, he was selling that restaurant discreetly, as was his right to do. But by me sending the email, it had set the cat amongst the pigeons. However, it seemed to me he had missed the point. Surely the larger and more pressing issue was that he was dealing with a convicted fraudster and more than likely about to be conned even further. So I'm standing there by the riverside, getting my ear chewed off by an angry Australian man on an unknown New Zealand number. His reaction, coupled with his Australian accent, had planted a seed of doubt. Was it really Tony, or was I actually speaking directly to Andrew? It's fair to say my trust in the human race was somewhat shaken by this point. And so ensued a very odd and very tense conversation, and there was about as much trust in that conversation as Donald Trump talking with Kim Jong-un. I didn't give away very much other than I knew someone who had been conned by Andrew Thompson slash Tonks and his restaurant had been mentioned. In the end, I directed him to the Otago Daily Times article. And then I hear it, that sound of the penny finally dropping. The moment Tony realises what he has lost already and the possibility of what he is days away from losing, his entire restaurant. So Tony tells me his story, and perhaps it will feature in the yet-to-be-penned part two of the Tonka Trilogy. Andrew Tonks, who had been known to Tony as Andrew Thompson, had come into his orbit when he had been approached by an agent representing a very keen buyer, almost nine months prior. That's three months before he'd even met Emma. So not long out of prison, and most likely did not have the money to purchase a restaurant. It was now very clear that Andrew had set up this whole web of cons and then deliberately gone on Tinder looking not for a lifelong partner, but a target to fund them. And maybe you're sitting at home thinking, well, duh, obviously. But when you're in it, you can only actually ever see your own part of the con. It's kind of like putting together a puzzle when you don't have the box with the picture on it. Once it's complete, well, yeah, of course you can see how it all connects. But individually, each of those pieces, it doesn't quite make sense on their own. Tony went on to tell me that he had never actually met Andrew in person. But through the agent, they had come to an arrangement that meant Andrew would buy the restaurant for close to $2 million. Yep, that's right, $2 million. And how did he convince the lawyers, the agents and Tony that he was a serious buyer? Well, that forged financial statement showing his worth to be in the millions, of course. 
But although Andrew showed that he was minted, he didn't intend on putting any of his own money where his mouth was. He was planning to purchase the restaurant using vendor finance, along with a deposit that would be provided by his business partner. Now, I won't bore you with the ins and outs of the deal, but what you should know is that the deal relied on Andrew taking ownership of the restaurant on the proviso that he made repayments of $50,000 every month towards its purchase, kind of like a higher purchase agreement for a business, if you like. So in short, Andrew was paying less cash up front, none of it his own, but he would have full ownership of the restaurant and be paying it off with higher monthly payments for the privilege, payments that would be generated by takings in the business. Put simply, if the business tanked, then goodbye to Tony's $50,000 a month, and also probably goodbye to the reputation of a restaurant that he had built from scratch for years and years. But as Tony was talking, my ears had pricked up at the mention of Andrew's business partner. And this time, it wasn't a figment of Andrew's overactive imagination like Ari of earlier episodes, but a person that we'll be calling Tom. And Tony had actually met him. Was he another potential victim? So what we knew from Tony was that Tom had visited the restaurant and told Tony he was somewhat of a master chef. But Tony had never heard of him before, and when he pressed him on his plans for the restaurant, Tony was even less convinced. For me, Tom had a really large question mark over him. What had been a jarring and aggressive start to my conversation with Tony had rapidly thawed as he began to appreciate what was at stake. His Tonks tally currently stood at tens of thousands of dollars that he'd spent with lawyers over the last nine months. Nine months that no lawyers or brokers clocked that Andrew Thompson was actually convicted fraudster Andrew Tonks. If, however, the sale went through of the restaurant, I was sure his Tonks tally would be even more substantial. I wasn't sure exactly how, but I would bet my life there would be a massive sting in the tail for Tony. At the end of that conversation, like Emma had done with Frankie at the alcohol company, I pleaded with Tony not to expose Emma and I any further to Andrew. So I left that conversation with Tony agreeing to withdraw from the sale of the restaurant without giving any reasons and to contact Detective Matt to share what he knew about Andrew Tonks. Dear Andrew, this is to inform you that Tony no longer wishes to continue with the agreement for sale and purchase of Queenstown Restaurant. At this point, it is no longer for sale. Andrew responds back to the agent and surprise, surprise, it is conveniently all someone else's fault. And this time, it's apparently all mine. Hi, John. Well, that was a wasted eight months. Please thank the seller for his time and his consideration and also please pass on my apologies that my relationship issues and my partner's family have yet again cost me another business deal. And we didn't have to wait very long before we got the blowback from Andrew. Sarah's pursuit has just cost me eight months negotiation in an instant. I don't know if I should be furious or lay down and cry. I am only sending you this because yet again this impacts not just me but you. And that breaks my heart more than anything. When will they understand that? I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board now. Her and your brother have single-handedly destroyed my ability to obtain business or work in Queenstown. The only place on earth I truly love and want to be. Tom will call you later. We are still working on a resolution for you. Because as always stated from the start, 
I want this over and now. But your bloody sister has just put it off for a few weeks for sure this time. I can't talk about this anymore today. I need to go and scream somewhere. Talk in a few days with a plan once I calm down. Love always, Andrew. So I really can't lie. That was super satisfying to me. It felt like we'd beaten him at his own game just a little bit. So Andrew gets really angry at me at that stage because he he comes at me saying that that you, Sarah, have blown up his deal that he was been working on for months, like since November with this restaurant. I then said, but no, I'm not doing it. I didn't even know what was happening. And so I put it all on you, Sarah, in London and said that you had gone rogue and that I'm so sorry. And he was like, well, she is causing me to lose this opportunity. And he tells me that my family has has lost me everything. Like it's my family's fault. It's never his fault, but it's my family's fault. And that he was actually going to come after you, Sarah, legally. Like he was, I'm, you know, I'm going to come after her. She has stopped me from making this deal. And that deal was the way that you were going to be paid. So technically, your family has stopped you from getting the money that you deserve. It's good to hear you had nothing to do with it. I'm assuming Sarah's watched too much Netflix and figures out I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. But what it has done, and again, your family causes it, and I'm the one getting the pressure, is Restaurant Queenstown has to go through or Tom won't give me the money to pay you out. As it stands now, your brother has cost you over $100,000 in investment interest and your sister potentially any chance of early payout. Your text is probably just in time as my business partner who was the dollars for this deal is beyond furious. He's gone to our lawyer. But I have just informed the lawyer of your text, so we'll hold that action for a second. This deal has taken me eight months to broker. And the minute your sister got involved, the seller has shit himself. It's much the same as the property deal, if a phone call hadn't interfered. Every action is causing reaction that only delays yours and my own peace and resolution, let alone stopping me from making money. You need to call Tom to A, stop your sister getting massive legal actions towards her, and B, to hear it from him how this has impacted the return of the money at this stage. Maybe check with Tom if he wants you to contact the seller, because at this stage, I've tried calming them both down, and it's well beyond my control now. Well, he was finally right about something. I had been watching too much Netflix. And yes, 100% I did think that Dirty Andrew was defrauding Emma. All that gaslighting and legal threats, as far as Emma and I could see, they only had one purpose. One of the things that came out from that was it was really clear his motivation and his motivation was to be able to stall me again and explain that this is the reason why the money hadn't been paid. So Andrew had Tom give me a call. We are going back and forth as well. Is Tom in on it or is he actually a victim as well? And that was what I was trying to figure out and that became quite clear in that conversation He was a victim like the rest of us. He was saying that he was investing money into the restaurant business, that he was helping be the seed money so that Andrew could do vendor finance to buy that restaurant. And that's something that Andrew brought up before, that vendor finance with buying the properties. And he was apparently rinsing and repeating that process again with the restaurant company. So he needed Tom to be the financial backer. He didn't have much money, but the money he was getting apparently was from his family. And he was trying to reassure me. He was 
really trying to be convincing, saying, look, Andrew is doing everything in his power to get that money to pay me back. And it will be coming. He's like, it will be coming. I was so angry at that point and I couldn't express it to Andrew. I'd never talked on the phone with him since then. So I get angry at this man. I said I had a legal document. I explained to him that he has reneged on that agreement, that I had a binding agreement, that he has not been paying and defaulting on the payments and I'm supposed to be in a relationship with him. During that conversation, Emma tests how much Tom really knows about his friend Andrew. For example, does he know that he has told Emma he has millions of dollars and that he's even shown proof of it to Emma's lawyers? I think it's at that moment a seed of doubt is planted for Tom. Turns out the Andrew Tom knows is the Andrew who works in dispatch for the trucking company, the one who tells Tom he has no money. But even so, Tom has had a healthy swig of Andrew's Kool-Aid by now and he's been convinced that he should invest with Andrew. Of course, knowing that Andrew has no money, Tom has gone to his family to secure the funding for the deposit, a cool $50,000. So how was the restaurant going to be able to repay Emma that debt so quickly? Well, according to Tom, as soon as the sale was complete, they would have had access to a substantial business overdraft. And Tom had agreed that Andrew could use it immediately to settle the debt to Emma. Now, it didn't take a rocket scientist to see who was going to be left holding the baby. If Tom's name was on the overdraft with a convicted fraudster using a fake name. So in short, if the purchase of the restaurant went through, Tom's tonks tally would most likely have been six figures. So although Emma couldn't risk showing Tom all her cards, she had left Tom with just more questions and answers about his soon-to-be business partner. He kind of got all flustered and left it and goes, oh, well, I'll talk to Andrew. I'll go talk to him and figure it out. And I didn't hear from him for another week. All in all, Tony at Restaurant Queenstown probably had a lucky escape. The tens of thousands of dollars he'd already spent in legals could have turned out to be a lot worse. And we'd hopefully helped Tom dodge a Tonka-sized bullet as well. Even though Andrew hadn't got to the end prize of buying the restaurant, he hadn't wasted any of that time in the middle without adding a little casual daily fraud into his life. Remember that brand new leased Ford Ranger truck that Andrew had soon taken possession of after he met Emma? Well, the police had done a little digging after we told them about the Queenstown restaurant scam. And it turns out the car was leased not to ATI Limited, Andrew's newly created company in New Zealand, but instead it was leased to the owner of Queenstown Restaurant. One, Andrew Thompson. Another charge to add to the ever-growing list. And just in case you'd forgotten, while Andrew was dealing with the collapse of the restaurant deal, he was, according to his numerous daily texts, knee-deep in a counter-terror operation for the Australian government, pulling 48-hour shifts on stakeouts, surveying targets in his reprised role as the piss-soaked bum slash counter-terror agent. At the time, Emma and I, we did just assume that he was in Melbourne. What we didn't know was that Andrew had in fact been on a stakeout and had locked on to his next potential target. If you recall, we met Danielle briefly in the last episode. So I was on holidays with my dad and my stepmom. They'd come to Tasmania. So I was down the east coast with them and I was on Tinder and this 
guy popped up and I matched with him. So normally I wouldn't have matched with somebody at that distance away because it was like, you know, 300 kilometres away. And he said where he was living and he said that he was staying with his parents at the time. And he was a, a businessman and he had business interests in Tasmania in on the mainland and also in New Zealand. And I thought, this guy's really interesting and we stayed in touch. And about a week later, um, he'd said he'd come up to the northwest coast, which is where I live in Tasmania, and said that um, we'd go out for dinner. So Andrew makes the 300-kilometre trek to Danielle's hometown, books into a motel, and they meet in a restaurant. Initially, obviously, I walked in. He was somebody who looked like his profile pictures. I find that online dating, quite often, they, they might not. Dressed really well, dressed in what I considered, you know, somewhat labels, he was wearing some RM Williams gear, which is, you know, not for the poor people over over here in, in Australia. Very much dressed like a like a, a, a guy that owned, you know, some, some trucking businesses and, you know, he was very smart but casual at the same time and, you know, on first impressions I thought, well, you know, this guy is who he's saying he is. Like he's got the money to obviously dress the way that he did. The conversation throughout uh, dinner was was very engaging. You know, we just talked about his business interests a little bit more. I mentioned that my best friend had a medical innovation that he had an international patent on, and Andrew had said that he had some some ideas of things that he'd like to patent as well, and he just, uh, told me a couple of, of those ideas and, you know, said, oh, maybe I could talk to your friend about how to get these things going further. Now, aside from the fact that Andrew was for all intents and purposes in a relationship with Emma at that same time, I'm not saying that Andrew was up to anything more than on the lookout for love. But I would like to remind you of a few key facts as Danielle relays the rest of her story and see if you can spot any of the fake news. Fake news is probably not the best and most conducive to building the foundations of a relationship going forward. And I'm going to start with number one. Andrew did not own a trucking company. He said at the time that he and his father owned one of these trucking businesses and to this day I couldn't tell you whether it was in New Zealand or whether it was in Tasmania or on the mainland. I did notice that he had uh, two phones with him that night. He said one was his work phone and one was his personal phone. He was taking uh, quite a few messages and calls on his uh, work phone, which is the New Zealand phone. He was organising some work or something like that and he was saying that that they employ ex-prisoners from New Zealand prisons to drive for their New Zealand trucking company and went into quite quite a bit of detail as to how that process works and some of the stories that he'd he'd heard and that the prisoners had told him and very detailed information. Time for fact number two. Remember the Ford Ranger truck that Andrew had fraudulently leased back in New Zealand? Well, about the same time as Andrew's landed in Tasmania, that truck is being repossessed. The next day he went home. He was driving his sister's car. He said that his brother-in-law had loaned his brand new Ford Ranger and he was driving his sister's car and he said to me, oh, it's, she wants me to buy her the, the, the latest model of it and the, you know, the, the biggest upgrade and the luxury model because I've got all this money and, and all these sorts of things. And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's interesting, you know, that he must be a generous, generous brother. So we stayed in touch again, organised to catch up again the following week. And again, he came up to the northwest coast to see me. 
we had dinner again. He stayed at a motel. In his motel room, he, he had this big uh, luggage bag. It, was, it wasn't a suitcase. It was like a big overnight bag and a, a leather like satchel that he kept his uh, laptop and his um, mobile phone and his tablet and everything in. And at the time he referenced it as pretty much all that I own in the world's in those bags. And I thought, oh, because he travels so much, he, he mustn't have too many possessions. So I asked him a, a little bit more about why he was living with his parents in this little, you know, seaside town, not in uh, the major city here, Hobart where he said that he'd owned restaurants and things like that. He said that he owned a place that he rented to his friend and because he'd just moved back, he didn't think it was fair to kick her out and move in. She had all of his his belongings, like she was using his couch and his bed and his dining room table and those sorts of things. That's why he couldn't just move back in and he thought, oh, I'll just stay with mum and dad, they've got the room. Didn't really seem that out of the ordinary to me, I don't think. Throughout the t- like the next couple of weeks, we'd organise to catch up. So he'd either come up to see me or I would, you know, organise to go down and see him on my days off. And each time we planned something, something really urgent would come up. And and that, that urgency was always that something was going on with his property development that he was working on and this property development in New Zealand. Quite often he'd say things like, I've got trouble with one of my investors or I need to babysit my investor or things like that. Fact three, the New Zealand police at this stage were actively looking for Andrew's whereabouts. So if Andrew had entered the country, they would be immediately notified and probably would have prepared a very special meet and greet upon his landing. Through those couple of weeks, he said that he went to New Zealand and I I had you know, no thought that he wasn't there because he was he was sending me photos from the places that he said that he was uh, that that he rented or staying with a mate. These photos that you know seem to prove that he was over there. Photos of the mountains when he was flying into Queenstown or wherever it was that he was actually flying into really sold, you know, all of that to me. I, I had no reason again to to not believe that he was not who he said he was. He'd told me that he was an AFL footballer I thought okay you know I've never heard your name and not that I'm a big football fan but I did jump onto the internet to see if I could find you know some sort of team photo to see where he played for the West Coast Eagles and that's who he told me he played for and I couldn't find any information I thought oh maybe he's just exaggerating a little bit maybe he just played in the reserves and not the seniors and that's why there's there's nothing online about it didn't really think too much of it after that. Said about the owning restaurants and, and things, so, you know, I gave him a quick Google on, you know, Andrew Thompson Restaurant Hobart. Nothing came up. He did tell me that he wasn't on any form of social media because he's a businessman and, you know, everybody had come after him with knives and forks looking for donations and, you know, money and things like that. And I didn't find that unusual that he wasn't on the on social media because friends of mine are also off social media with the same beliefs. So that was, I suppose, easy enough for him to sell to me and that I was, you know, convinced by that. Uh, I don't think I really need to address the AFL story. But Andrew, he was finally telling the truth to Danielle about something. It was a fact that Andrew Thompson had no social media presence. 
However, Andrew Tonks, on the other hand, well, that was a different story. We're going to be leaving Danielle's story there just for the time being, but we will be revisiting it in later episodes. So as we leave Andrew and Danielle in their blossoming relationship, Emma and I are satisfied that at least we have put a stop to the restaurant deal and hopefully saved Tom from tangling his $50,000 in a Tonks time bomb. The restaurant con and the many others got us to thinking. That's all just happened in the last nine months. But what about before that? And that took me down a very interesting rabbit hole. I'm Fabian Christoph. I'm the ex-owner of the Mill on Morrison, which I sold to Andrew Tonks. Turns out that Restaurant Queenstown was not Andrew's first rodeo. Shadow dark upon the wall, moving slow and stretching toward her hands. Hold them up, that's cold. A shadow dark upon the wall, moving slow and stretching toward and up to the mountains her gaze is If you liked our story, please share with family and friends and like, subscribe and review so others can learn from my lessons. If you or anyone you know has been affected by something similar, please reach out for help. You are not alone. We've included some links in our show notes. Conning the Con was made with the input of Dr. Sophie Muir and the original music is by the talented Aroha Min. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's Active Shooter Program. And we have a, well, not so gently named podcast called Stop the Killing. Yep, there's a clue in the title. We need your help to end the global mass shooting epidemic. Find out how as we bring you the stories right from the source. If you would have told me that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, I would have said, no way. I remember just thinking, he's got a gun. Something rose up inside, and I said, not my school. What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. My little boy, Alex, was murdered. If we can fix the failures, we can save lives. My daughter, Elena, was killed. She'd want me to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. Join us and be part of the solution. Subscribe now to Stop the Killing podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your true crime podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform, 
and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.